You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Peter J. Hotes. He's a dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Last time we talked about uh, vaccines for neglected diseases that affect countless millions of people worldwide. Uh, this time I wanted to focus on a couple of things I'm seeing and he's seeing um, an anti-science movement and uh, anti-vaccine movement. So I want to talk about these issues. They're, you know, they're not necessarily uh, as deep as the other ones, but super important. So uh, welcome back, Peter. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much uh, for having me. What's been your experience with, uh, I guess, the anti-vaccination movement and um, you know, then uh, anti-science? Well, you know, it's an area that I never thought I'd have to deal with, uh, but it's become a new reality in this uh, 21st century. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a vaccine scientist and pediatrician, but I'm also the parent of an adult daughter, uh, four adult kids. My youngest daughter, Rachel, has autism and also intellectual disabilities. And that the reason that's relevant is over the last couple of decades, we've seen this aggressive rise of an anti-science movement that claims, among other things, that vaccines cause autism. It's not the only thing they assert, but autism is the is a common thread. And, and it started with the publication of a fake paper in the late 1990s and it began as a fringe group. But then it caught fire with the internet and social media in the 2010s. And now it's, uh, it's uh, become an aggressive, well-organized movement. And I'm not front and center of it because of the fact that I'm a vaccine scientist and the parent of an adult daughter with autism. And then I did not see a really vigorous response from the scientific community, which we could talk about. So I wrote a book with a straightforward title published by Johns Hopkins University Press that came out a year ago called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And, and mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, put me in the uh, crosshairs of the leaders of the anti-vaccine movement. And it's been a roller coaster ride ever since. So what are the what's the premise of the anti-vaccine movement? They're saying that certain vaccines cause autism. Like, what's the proposed mechanism? Well, they don't really have a proposed mechanism, but um, they, you know, and they keep moving the goalposts. So the original paper, which was retracted by the editors of the biomedical journal The Lancet, where it was published, claimed that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine had the ability to cause uh, autism. At that time, they called it pervasive developmental disorder, but we know it today as autism. Um, it was shown to be fraudulent uh, and uh, the results uh, 
uh, not valid. Uh, and a lot of this was revealed by the hard work of an investigative journalist for the Sunday Times of London named Brian Deere, who uh, wrote a series of articles in, in the Sunday Times, but also in the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, and the and it was retracted, and and the one of the lead authors lost their medical license, uh, and so you'd think that would have taken care of it. Unfortunately, it took twelve years for that paper to get retracted, and and a lot of buzz to be created that there was something wrong with vaccines, and then different individuals started making different assertions. So it moved from the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to the thimerosal preservative that used to be in vaccine, and then it was spacing vaccines too close together, and then it was alumin vaccines. And, uh, and so, you, you know, the, we started playing this sort of pyrrhic game of uh, vaccine whack-a-mole, trying to refute the assertions. And then in the meantime, the anti-vaccine movement became a, became a big business. Uh, in uh, the Washington Post today, there's a, an article by Lena Sun reporting on the tens of millions of dollars being made by the fake health and wellness industry that's now being used to finance the anti-vaccine movement. We've got now 480 fake anti-vaccine websites uh, on the internet, uh, all revved up on Facebook. Amazon is for all practical purposes an anti-vaccine website. If you type books into the search engine, go to health and wellness and then vaccinations, you get all fake anti-vaccine books. Uh, and then it's become politicized. We're seeing uh, anti-vaccine uh, political action committees. So this has become a big deal. And the reason why we need to be concerned now is it's starting to affect public health. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's get in a little deep with it because, you know, you're saying that the anti-vaccine people are, you know, it's fake and it's wrong and they're not right. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're saying the same thing about you, like, you know, you're wrong and all that. But let's get into some of the mechanics of it. Can we talk about specifically the vaccines themselves, you know, the MMR vaccine? Again, was there any proposed mechanism? And if you put on your hat, you know, your thinking hat, your anti-vax hat, like what, what could they have been talking about? And then let's go into the preservative. Like, you know, again, pretend for a moment that you would try to justify what they're saying, the opposite side, and you know, put yourself in their shoes. And like, what, what could have been the thinking there? Well, in the, pa- the original paper, they claimed the virus replicates in the gut and the colon. And then somehow that magically leads to uh, autism without really a substantial mechanism. And they, you know, and they try to come up with these mechanisms that really don't hold a lot of plausibility. And, and I say that for two reasons. One, we have now studies in over 1.2 million children uh, showing that kids who get vaccinated are no more likely to get uh, develop autism than kids who don't get vaccinated. And conversely, kids on the autism spectrum are no more likely to have been vaccinated than kids not on the on the autism spectrum. So. Um, it, it works just about every way possible. And one of the things I do in the book is go into details of the vast amount of studies and literally more than a million kids showing there's absolutely no link between vaccines and autism, and especially all of those things that they purport. Um, the, other piece, the other piece to this is uh, we, we now know what autism is. We, we've learned a lot about it. Uh, the Broad Institute at Harvard-MIT has come out with an excellent 
paper reporting on 100 different autism genes all involved in early fetal brain development. The point is that the, the developmental processes that are associated with autism happen early on in pregnancy, well before kids ever see vaccines. So one of the things that we did uh, at Baylor College of Medicine, where I'm a professor, we have one of the top genetics departments in the country, and we did whole exome sequencing, sequencing all of the DNA of Rachel, and uh, uh, we actually identified uh, an autism gene, uh, not too different from the ones reported by the Harvard, the Broad Institute at Harvard MIT. So it, it doesn't mean that there's no environmental influence. Uh, there are some chemical exposures around the time of conception that could lead to a phenotype that looks like autism. So there's some epigenetic pathways, but the, 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 the evidence is clear. It's unrelated to vaccines. And, and then what you see is the anti-vaccine movement now uh, that you know we've written the book, the book's come out and, and other evidence, they're even starting to pivot away from autism and they're coming up with other phony baloney. They're saying, vaccines cause teenage depression, suicide, which is ridiculous, um, or that it causes uh, uh, autoimmune disease, or that it causes, uh, uh, and you know, the, the, the list goes on of, of the fake assertions. Uh, the problem is that it's a massive, well-oiled, well-funded misinformation campaign, and, the sci- and it's being actually uh, amplified by the tech community. So, you know, Facebook is is a major promoter of this misinformation. Uh, so is Amazon. So are some of the other social media and e-commerce platforms. And the defense of vaccines sadly falls to a handful of academics like myself and some pediatricians in practice. And we're outgunned. So you know, right now, if you're a parent and you want to download healthcare information about vaccines, more likely than not, you're going to get garbage. You're going to get deliberate misinformation. So now it's brought measles back to the United States after it's been eliminated for 20 years. Uh, We have a generation of teenagers being denied cancer prevention. They're not getting their HPV vaccine. So we're going to condemn a generation of women to cervical cancer. Um, We've already had uh, this year six uh, deaths in Texas among uh, kids uh, with influenza. We know at least four of them did not get vaccinated despite recommendations. We don't know the story in the other two. So this is bad. I mean, we're, you know, we had a terrible epidemic in New York this past year that landed 50 in the hospital of, of measles from measles and 18 in the ICU. So this is now more than just uh, a misinformation campaign. It is reversing public health gains in the United States in some ways, it's even worse in Europe, and now I worry it's going to go global and, and affect things in a big way there. And we're already seeing that play out in Samoa this uh, winter, where we've had more than seventy deaths uh, from measles. Well, let's let's go uh, to basics for a minute. So, you know, just so I, I I may be mistaken, but what is a vaccine and how does it work? Like some real basics. Yeah, well, a vaccine is a, uh, it's often injected, although there are oral vaccines as well, and it often contains uh, a, a component of the infectious agent, or it's the killed version of the infectious agent, or a weakened version of the infectious agent, and it doesn't cause the disease, but it stimulates an immune response, so that if you're unfortunate enough to be exposed to the disease, you're protected. 
So it's uh, it's a it's a, a biologic uh, that is used to create an immune response to protect you against the actual infection. And you're protected because your immune system has become familiarized with this particular organism, so that if it does, you know, enter your body, the immune system is already prepared, and it can fight against it sooner than it otherwise would, or fight against it at all when it yeah. otherwise would. Yeah, I think that's a fair fair statement. Um, the first vaccine that we had was developed by uh, a British physician in the late 1700s named Edward Jenner. The next set was around Louis Pasteur and the anthrax vaccine and the rabies vaccine in the 1800s. But now we've gotten a lot more sophisticated. We've been able to use modern biotechnology to develop uh, lots of new vaccines uh, for all of the diseases that are uh, uh, both emerging and have been around for a while. So an example is uh, a vaccine for a disease called Haemophilus influenza type B. It's got the word influenza in it, not because it causes influenza, but during the 1918 flu pandemic, they erroneously thought it was the cause. It turns out it's actually a cause of terrible bacterial meningitis. So when I was, uh, after I did my medical degree and my PhD, I to become a physician scientist, I did some pediatric training in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And I was admitting a child with this terrible form of meningitis called HIB, HIB, B is in boy meningitis, every few weeks. So it caused uh, permanent neurologic injury, deafness, and sometimes the child died. And, and that was in the late 1980s. And by the time I'd finished my pediatric residency training, a new vaccine had come online and uh, quickly adopted so that within three years, three to four years, the disease had disappeared from the United States. So it was a disease that I went from admitting a child every few weeks to the hospital uh, with, uh, we went from that to, uh, it, I, we talked, I talked about it to the young pediatricians, the house officers, the residents purely for historic interest. I mean, that's the miracle of vaccine. So it's very heartbreaking to see this anti-science movement trying to discredit it. And, and, and it's, and we're seeing this now as a new dominant theme for uh, a lot of new technologies. It's, we're seeing this not only as an anti-vaccine movement, there's an anti-genetically uh, modified organism movement, there's uh, 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 climate denial, and I'm sure we're going to start seeing, uh, as we have developed new sophisticated technologies in bioscience like CRISPR-Cas9, we're going to see anti-science movements affect that as well. So we're starting to give a lot of thought to, you know, as a scientific and technological community, we have to recognize there's a new normal out there that anti-science is ruling the day. And we've got to come up with some innovative schemes to, to counter it. Well, but, but realize though that this is all happening against the backdrop. So the anti-vax movement is also happening against the backdrop of autism seeming to be a lot more prevalent than for. And, you know, some of the new health claims, et cetera, all the alternative health stuff is against the backdrop of people appearing to be obese and have uh, chronic health problems, you know, 10 to 30 fold than versus before, unless the data is inaccurate there. So it also is. Yeah, yeah that's inaccurate. That's, that's, uh, that's one of the myths perpetrated by uh, the, the anti-vaccine movement. In fact, there's, there's, there's no evidence for that. And there's really 
no evidence that there's, you know, one of the things the, the movement claims that there's an autism epidemic, when in fact what, what's happening is um, we're, we're doing, we're, we're broadening our diagnostic criteria for autism. So what, when I was a kid in the 60s, what used to be diagnosed with an, as intellectual disabilities or mental retardation, a term we don't use anymore, fortunately, is now being labeled autism. Let me give you an example. Um, we're getting better at diagnosing girls and women with autism. We used to say it was 10 to one boys to girls. Now we recognize it's much closer to parity. So it's more closely to one to 1.5 to one. It's just that girls on the autism spectrum tend to be more verbal. Uh, they can camouflage their autism better, but they have very high rates of comorbidity, such as obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or, um, or even eating disorder. So it turns out a lot of the teenage girls with bulimia and other eating disorders are actually on the autism spectrum. So as we, as we fix that diagnostic issue, uh, we'll actually see the numbers rise yet again. But again, it's not a real rise in the number of uh, kids and teenagers and adults with autism. It's, it's how we're categorizing this and the, and the major uh, organizations committed to mental health and, and relate and autism are, are looking into that. All right. So you, all right. So you think there's no real actual rise in autism. It's just a better diagnosis ability. Uh, that, that, that's what I think. Uh, and um, so, 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 so this is going to be, so one of the problems again is, you know, like you said, it, you know, you came, came out with, you know, pretty sounding pretty definitive about the rise in autism and and the rise in chronic disease and again you, you know you're you yourself are sort of the well, the, well the rise in of, of, obesity, of the misinformation that, campaign yeah that Look, i've seen with my own eyes that, well obe that. obesity is a different story so uh so but but to say that's in any way related to vaccines of course is, uh, is no is no i'm not saying that um go ahead yeah. Well, what I was yeah, going to well, go ahead, and then we'll. I'd like to go back to vaccines after that. Yeah, I mean, I, I partly blame ourselves, our our community of scientists, for this problem. That we're, we're either too, we're either silent or we're invisible. Um, we, you know, we don't seem to see public engagement as a very important activity or a necessary activity, uh, and. And and we're largely and working scientists are largely invisible to the American public and 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 the evidence for that is modest. I like to cite uh, a study done by Research America, which is a good policy think tank in Washington, that find that finds that ninety percent of Americans cannot name a living scientist, and of those who can, it's people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye the Science Guy. There's there's nothing wrong with those individuals. It's just that they're not working scientists as we know them doing experiments and lab meetings and writing grants and papers. And the fact that we're invisible, I think, has created a problem that people become suspicious about scientists. They don't know what scientists do. So I've been really writing and speaking about the need for scientists to be, not for everyone, but a cadre of scientists to be out there and interacting with the public. And that's one of the reasons why I go on podcasts like this to dispel a lot of ignorance and myths about scientists and what scientists do. Well, I can assure you they're real people. I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of them myself. 
right, right, so, right. But but remember, uh, podcasts like you're doing right. are the exception, right? So we need more. We need more podcasts like like what you're doing uh, to give a face to science and demystify mm-hmm. uh, what what scientists are all about. And so I think you do a good job of that. Yeah, I mean, as a as a lay person that has become literate enough now to read scientific papers, it's you have to have motivation for it, and I think that. You know, you know, I see, I see some good things in science, like like Wired magazine on YouTube, for instance. They'll say, um, um, you know, a scientist explains quantum physics to, uh, you know, they'll they'll explain it first to a grade grade level student, and then a high schooler, college, post grad, and then a colleague. So stuff like that's really cool. Or you know, yeah, I, I, space I, I agree. Yeah, I, I I love both of those. Uh, Wired is fabulous. PBS is great. There's IFL Science, which I won't say what it stands for. So, so there are pieces to it, but the problem is, you know, you, as you, as you point out, it's not all that user-friendly. You really got to go yeah. digging for it, right? And, and looking around, it's not easily accessible and you have to have a lot of motivation to, to want to dig through it. Like, you know, for instance, yeah, definitely. like definitely. for instance, the CDC website, Centers for Disease Control website, all the information is there to counteract the anti-vaccine movement. But it's like going on an archaeological dig. I mean, I, I know where to look for it, but I have an MD and a PhD. It's mm-hmm. just not all that user-friendly for, for the lay public. So I think we really need to build this out. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm proposing, and the Public Library of Science does some good things, but it's, it's sort of hit or miss. So what I've been proposing is uh, now is to, to build in public engagement and science communication into PhD and postdoctoral training, into medical and residency training. And, it, and it's been a tough sell uh, because uh, universities and academic health centers are pretty risk-averse institutions. And, and many of them, I mean, Baylor and Texas Children are great where I work, but others, you know, are they really don't want their scientists and their docs speaking out uh, uh, they they want to control the flow of information, so there's a lot of culture change that's going to have to happen if that's going to occur. Yeah, no, definitely. Like again, anyone listening, if they try to go read a scientific paper, at first it's like gobbledygook, and it takes a long time and a lot of interest to really be able to understand what's going on. You know, I've experienced and when I interview people in different fields, like sometimes it'll take me. At first, it took me twenty or thirty interviews to really start to understand a subject, and sometimes even a hundred. And I don't know who's going to, I mean, for the most part, who's going to take time to do that. And um, and part of it is the way we speak, right? So, right. Uh, you know, one of the things I had to do for the book is speak in simple, simple declarative sentences. Vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. Well, if you think about it, that's not really how scientists talk. In fact, right. when, uh, now we call it the National Academy of Medicine, but when the Institute of Medicine came out with their report on vaccines and autism in 2012, you know, it was something like, well, the preponderance of evidence to date cannot identify any clear links between vaccines and autism. You know, if you're a layperson, you're reading that, I say, well, what are they really saying here? And, and so it's inter- misinterpreted as being sort of cagey or coy or uh, not lack, lacking transparency. I mean, I know, I understand as a scientist what they're saying, but I think many people don't. So we're, we're speaking almost in different languages, yeah, no, I mean, I guess one way to say it, and this is, you know, my interpretation, but if you don't make science 
and medicine and all this accessible to people, then someone else is going to do it and they may interpret it and translate it in a way that you did not want, did not intend. It could be completely different. Yeah, so, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what we've relied on and that's worked for us surprisingly well for decades or centuries. But as I like to point out, then something called the internet came along and, and social media and e-commerce platforms and that just amplified the voice, uh, the the anti-science voices in a huge way, and now I think we're all sort of scrambling, figuring out how to how to fix all this. So, what's your recommendation? A layperson, um, let's say they're faced with a disease, them or a family member. What do they do? What are what are some recommendations for how they could find information that would be useful to them and not just you know quackery or uh, inscrutable scientific papers. Well, I think, you know, for and the vaccine issue, you know, we do have experts. Most communities have experts. They're called your pediatrician, or in some cases, your nurse practitioner, where they get a fair amount of information about vaccines. Um, now we're starting to build uh, a lot of vaccine instruction into schools of pharmacy. So your pharmacists often know a lot about vaccines. So these are, you know, it should be trusted individuals in the community to speak to. If you're going to go to a website, um, you know, really look closely at the source and because a lot of them have deliberately misleading names to them that sound plausible like they're reputable sites when they're not. And that's the tough one, you know, you know, for a person who's not trained in science to figure out what what's real and what's not and 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 that's something that we need to work on as well well again to make this useful uh can we return to vaccines for a little bit i'd like to ask you a few more questions yeah sure not that this is not useful but specifically there um one one question i have is about flu vaccines you know every Mm -hmm. year there's all these admonishments you know get your flu vaccine you know but at the same time seems like you know the flu mutates and becomes different every year and I mean, so, for instance, should people get the flu vaccine or not? And will that really protect them or will the flu just keep mutating and it's not very useful? Yeah. So I I think that's a I'm really glad you asked because we're in flu season now. Right. And actually, flu season came early this year and we're already starting to see some uh, deaths from influenza, including pediatric deaths. So the answer is uh, flu is one of the most deadly and infectious diseases that strikes Americans in a bad flu season, you can easily see 60,000 deaths uh, from flu, which is, you know, I think more than more than people die of motor vehicle accidents. So flu is a bad actor. And the answer is you should absolutely get your vaccine. Now you're right in the sense that um, it's, you know, we don't have yet this holy grail of what's called a universal flu vaccine where you get vaccinated one time and you're protected for life. So that you have to get, you know, we have to look at the flu strains that are arising and get a new vaccine, flu vaccine at the start of every flu season, you know, starting in the late summer and the fall to protect you from flu season. And sometimes we get it right. The sign, you know, the scientists that prepare the vaccine, sometimes it's off a bit because the many flu vaccines, the viruses replicates in eggs. And as they replicate in eggs, they can uh, change so that so that the vaccine is not as effective as it could be. That's the bad news. The good news is even in v- years where there's not a perfect match between the vaccine strain of the flu vaccine strain and the actual flu, 
it will still mitigate disease. It'll still reduce uh, the severity of the disease and greatly reduce the likelihood that you'll be hospitalized or even die. So again, that's part of the anti-vaccine message. They, they say the first part that it can mutate and, and therefore it's not effective. It is effective. It may not always prevent you from getting a case of the flu, but it'll greatly reduce your chances of being hospitalized or dying. And that's why I get vaccinated. So overwhelmingly people who have influenza in America are individuals who have, for whatever reason, have not been vaccinated despite recommendations. What if... Um someone hasn't been vaccinated in many years for flu, should they all of a sudden start doing it or might that harm them? You know, once you haven't done it for a while. What no, 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 there's, there's no harm in getting vaccinated. Go ahead and get vaccinated anytime. I mean, I get my flu vaccine every year, but even if you've not gotten it for a few years, it's not too late. And it's not too late this flu season. Now's a good time to be getting. Curious, are there any studies of people that, um, have not been vaccinated for a very long time versus ones that get vaccinated every year in their response to flu? You know, there there is some evidence to suggest that if you get vaccinated repeatedly, you know, getting it every year, there's enough cross-protection so that your immune response is a bit more robust than if you have only gotten one vaccine after a few years. So it's better to get your annual flu vaccine but, you know, it's just like stopping smoking, right? It's never too late to stop smoking. It's never too late to start getting your flu vaccine. Yeah, flu vaccines for a particular year, are they saving uh, the vaccine components from previous years? Why not, you know, give someone a, a vaccine from the past 20 years that has like, like vintage wine. It has elements of the, all these vaccines from past years, and perhaps that would confer better immunity than just this year's. Well, there are probably limits into the number of killed flu viruses you can give in a, in a formulated vaccine. I think the, the real search that's on is to try to develop a vaccine that has common features to all of the flu strains, kind of like what you're talking about, but just to give it as a one-time shot. And, and that, that ter- the term that they use to describe such a vaccine, and there are a number of prototypes in various stages of development is called a universal flu vaccine, something that'll protect you against most of all the flu types that could arise in a given year. So you don't have to keep going back annually to get vaccinated. And that would, you know, that would be a very important development um, uh, because we've seen terrible flu years, right? In 2009, when we had the pandemic flu and the worst of all was the 1918 flu pandemic where you know, by some estimates, more than 50 million people perished globally. So, so that's, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's a big priority to develop a universal flu vaccine. What's, um, how do you know when to get vaccinated again? So flu every year, but what about measles, mumps, rubella? How often and what determines that? Just well, so people know. So measles, mumps, rubella, which we call the MMR vaccine, it's recommended in the United States to give it at one year of age. Um, because it often doesn't work as well when you give, start giving it to a five-month-old or a six-month-old. So one year of age, and then it's recommend doing a booster uh, at school entry at like four to five years of age. So two doses are 97% protected. For an individual like me, uh, who was uh, born at a time when we only gave a single dose, then you have to ask, should I get a booster? And because I do a lot of international travel for my work in tropical medicine, going in and out of airports in Europe and Asia, 
I'm at high risk. So I went, went ahead and went to my pharmacy, actually went to the grocery store or, or supermarket uh, where there's a pharmacy and I got my booster. I got my MMR booster. Um, what are the common vaccines that people uh, you know, should get? MMR, flu once a year, any others that uh, you know, we haven't mentioned? Well, if you're talking about being an adult, if you're talking about adults, uh, the other big one is called uh, Tdap. Uh, which is uh, tetanus diphtheria and then has something called the acellular pertussis because we're seeing pertussis circulate. And um, especially if there are infants in the community, if you're a grandparent or a parent and um, getting that Tdap is important to prevent you from spreading pertussis, which is also called whooping cough to, you know, if you have a, an infant in the house, either because it's your child or your your child's child, you want to make sure you're vaccinated against that. Another big one is uh, Shingrix. When you get to be my age, now I'm over 60, um, Shingrix is, uh, prevents you from getting shingles. And, and that's uh, an important vaccine to get as well. So, you know, there's a whole new field now of adult immunizations, adult vaccines that, that are coming online. Interesting. And then just, uh, you know, a couple more elements. Um, you said that at first, the anti-vaxxers said that the vaccine itself, you know, somehow was causing autism. And then you said the, uh, whatever was included with the vaccine to keep it stable and to keep a shelf stable, the preservative. Yeah. What, what was the, uh, the argument there? Or what, uh, what was the thought about the preservative being a problem? So, um, so after the MMR thing, uh, you know, was retracted by the Lancet, a uh, number of individuals uh, started writing about, including, Bobby Kennedy, RFK Jr., claiming that, no, no, we didn't mean the MMR vaccine. We meant a preservative that used to be in vaccines. It was removed uh, from almost all vaccines except some flu vaccine formulations in the, I believe, in the early 2000s. And, um, and so they constructed a whole theory that it was this preservative, which has uh, a form of mercury in it. Um, and so the prediction was, well, when you took that out, that you'll see uh, a drop in, in autism rates. And in fact, the studies have shown, number one, there's no link between this preservative, which is called thimerosal, and autism. And indeed, there's not been a drop in autism after the thimerosal was, was removed. So it's there's overwhelming evidence that thimerosal has nothing to do with it. And then then, you know, the leaders of the anti-vaccine movement shifted to say, okay, I get it. It's not MMR. It's not thimerosal. It must be because we're spacing vaccines too close together and somehow overwhelming the immune system. And then it shifted again. So you're, as I say, you keep on, uh, you know, playing catch up with, with the anti-vaccine uh, assertions. And it's tough on pediatricians because parents download this misinformation and parents, you know, the pediatricians have to keep up and they're often made to feel like they're not keeping up with the literature. They are, it's just that they're not keeping up with the misinformation literature. Okay. Yeah. Like I looked on the CDC site, so it talks about thimerosal. I see. Okay. Okay. Any other elements of, uh, of vaccines that have now subsequently been uh, attacked as being bad? Yeah. The, the ones, so they go after MM, they still go after MMR vaccine. They still go after flu vaccine. The other one, that they're trying to scare people about uh, is the vaccine that prevents cervical cancer, but also anal cancers and throat cancers. It's called the HPV vaccine. HPV stands for human papillomavirus. 
And, um, you know, it's a very safe vaccine and it has the ability to block these cancers to the point where the government of Australia has now made a concerted effort by expanding the population are going to vaccine, vaccinate, ensuring every teenager gets vaccinated. They are now on target to eliminate cervical cancer from the continent of Australia by the year 2028 or 2030. And the World Health Organization is looking at this, but what's happened is this has become the new target of the anti-vaccine movement so that the uptake rates of HPV vaccine among teenagers in some parts of the country is very low, sometimes 10, 20, 30%. So this is very, and in Japan, they've, uh, they've halted uh, vaccination programs altogether in many parts. So, you know, it's tragic to see, uh, you know, that we're purposefully going to condemn women to cervical cancer. In the U.S., 4,000 women die every year of cervical cancer. It's entirely preventable through, through the HPV vaccination. So, um you said that, uh, you know, after you came out with your book, that you've had some trouble. And are you able to say, like, what happened? Like, were you, I mean, what happened was your, uh, I mean, you know, again, can you talk about it? Are you okay to talk about what happened? Well, I can say, talk about a few things. I mean, you know, certainly there's a lot of harassment on social media. You know, social media is a tough place. Um, uh, as, as I like, I like the quote from Lady Gaga, who once, uh, called social media the toilet of the internet and that's, in many ways uh, you know that's born out. i mean it's it's a tough space you know on twitter and everything else so i'm on twitter uh but you know the the anti-vaxxers like the gang tackle so that's tough um and then you'll get the har- the harassing email sometimes threatening email um we i've been stalked a few times when i've given public lectures i had a tough incident in new york city a few weeks back at the New York Sheridan Hotel, I was speaking and they had a huge protest and uh, the security had to kind of whisk me out the back entrance of the hotel into a waiting Uber. So we'll see where it all goes. It seems to be, it's getting worse, not getting better. And, oh, wow. and uh, so, uh, so, so this has become a problem now that we're starting to see the harassments of, of scientists. It's not only from the anti-vaccine movement, but other things. So, you know, science is under attack and technology is under attack in America and in Europe. And we have to recognize this and realize that there's, we're going to have to think about new approaches. And, and I think, you know, the scientists involved in public engagement is going to be one piece to this, but it's not, not going to be the only thing. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Peter, what's the best way for people to uh, get in touch and not harass you, but, uh, you know, look, look for information or get your book and uh, learn from you instead. Well, you can get the book, uh, Vaccines Do Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And for now, at least, Amazon is still putting it out there. We'll see uh, after this whether that's still the case. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at, at Peter Hotez. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I think try to get educated at some of the good sites. CDC has still got a lot of good information. There's a U.S government site put out by Department of Health and Human Services called vaccines.gov. And there's a Canadian equivalent to that that's also uh, excellent. So uh, looking at, look at, try to get educated looking at that, you know, that, that kind of information. Well, very good. Well, Peter, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for giving attention to this issue.
You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.